This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, and I'm Mark Scarborough, and we're going to walk a little farther today. (laughs) We have been uh, walking slowly, and today we're going to do lines 10 through 27. Today, before I read the passage that we're on in the first canto at the opening of the Inferno, I want to just go back and read the opening nine lines again, and then walk right on into the new passage. So I want to do that in order to kind of give us a run into the passage. I just want to remind you that the translations, my rough translations of Dante's comedy, exist on my website, markscarborough.com. You can also look up walkingwithdante.com. It will direct to markscarborough.com. Once you're there, look for the subhead on the, the landing page, the splash page, the opening page. Look for the subhead, Walking with Dante. It will open up a blog, and there's all the translations based on each episode. I think I think the episodes themselves live there, too. And what's more important is the comments are open there, so you can comment all you want and we can talk about passages there on the blog mark scarborough or walkingwithdante.com so here we go in the middle of the journey of our life i found myself in a dark wood for the straightway was lost ah how hard it is to say what that wood was so savage and gnarled and hard that such a thought brings back my fear it is so bitter that death is hardly more so But to discuss the good I found there, I will tell the other things I saw. I cannot rightly say how I got there. I was so full of sleep at the moment when I abandoned the true way. But when I got to the foot of a hill where the valley ended that had pierced my heart with fear, I looked high up and saw its shoulders bathed in the rays of that planet that leads all of us straight along every path. Then the fear in the lake of my heart was calmed, the fear that had lasted all the night that I had spent in distress. And as someone with belabored breath who has gotten out of the deep and to the shore, then looks back at the perilous water, so my mind, still fleeing, turned back to look once more at the pass no one has ever left alive. Now we're moving. The journey is moving itself, and we've moved into a passage in which more is explained, and in typical Dante ways, more is made opaque. Let me just start out right at the front. I cannot rightly say how I got there. If you remember the first episode of this podcast, I made a big deal about the difference between the writer, the poet, and the pilgrim. And if you just think about where I just was, I cannot rightly say how I got there, where the passage starts today, that is. That's the writer. That is the writer saying, I cannot rightly say how I got there. And we just came out of that whole bit about, you know, it is so bitter that death is hardly more so. But to tell you about the good things I found, I'll tell you about the bad things I saw. And we just got out of that. So we're still in that writerly mode. So it says, I cannot rightly say how I got there. Ugh. There's the first problem. Why does the poet demure? Why can't he say how he got there? Just when we need more information, Dante turns opaque on us. I cannot rightly say how I got there, thereby thereby destroying the notion, and believe me, I think this is true, destroying the notion of an inmedius race opening. This is not an epic It's a comedy. It is 
comedy. And so this opening is not going to go back and tell us the past. I cannot rightly say how I got there to that dark wood. I was so full of sleep. Now, watch. In two lines, we've moved back to the pilgrim. I was so full of sleep at the moment when I abandoned the true way. That's the pilgrim. There's a big problem here, and many people have shipwrecked on this very problem about the true way, la verace via, and how much of that is, is like the straight way that is in the opening lines of the comedy. So how is this true way? Uh, how is it like the straight way? And are they the same thing? Unclear. What I can tell you about is that I wish that Dante had inserted a conjunction between these lines. Because if there were only a conjunction, everything would become clear. If he said, I cannot rightly say how I got there because I was so full of sleep at the moment when I abandoned the true way. Or if he just said, I cannot rightly say how I got there in spite of the fact that I was so full of sleep at the moment when I abandoned the true way, right? It is, it is the connection between I can't rightly say and I was so full of sleep that is so troubling. And what is that sleep? What is it that he was doing that caused him to leave the here, la verace via, and earlier the straight way? What is What happened here that he's so full of sleep? Of course, if you think about this for a moment and you know anything about the Christian story, you know there's that story of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when the disciples fall asleep and they can't watch, right? Christ is praying right before his passion. Jesus is praying right before he's crucified. And the disciples in the garden fall asleep. And he even says to them, can you not, you know, wake? Can you not wake with me and stay awake while I'm praying over the suffering that I'm about to endure? So maybe that's related to the sleeping disciples. Maybe I was so full of sleep at the moment when I abandoned the true way. And certainly sleeping People are associated oftentimes in Christianity with, and in Christian theology with, I don't, I don't know, with people who are asleep at the wheel, who aren't doing their best, who aren't doing what they're supposed to do. It's still a little unclear. What is, I was so full of sleep at the moment when I abandoned the true way. Here's another big question. Is this a dream poem? Is this a poem in which Dante dreams his journey across the universe? I think not, because it seems as if he has woken up or found himself in a dark wood. And I don't actually buy that this whole poem is a dream poem. And I also don't buy it because in most dream poems, there is the moment in which the sleeper awakes, particularly at the end of the poem, and comes back to this world and offers some moral from the medieval dream that he's had about this world that we're in. There is not going to be any waking here. In fact, there is going to be a further and further alignment with the divine. And the end of the poem is not a moment in which Dante wakes up back in this world. It is a moment in which he finds himself in utter ecstasy at the presence of God. But that's a long way off. I don't think it's a dream poem. 
because also Dante is at some pains to tell us along the way that this is the stuff he really saw. When we get to some very bizarre stuff, particularly in Inferno and in Purgatorio, when we get some really bizarre stuff, Dante is going to really lay it on thick. I swear I saw exactly this. Now, it is true that medievals thought that dreams are different than we do. Their, their notion of the real... And the dream is way different from ours. And dreams are a real or a heightened spiritual state. It's not that they're less real, as we might think as moderns, but that they might, in fact, be more real than this world. Nonetheless, I think that swearing on the fact that I really saw what I'm telling you I saw tells us that this is not a poem in which the poet well, I don't know, fell asleep. He was asleep when he abandoned the true way. But I think he's awake now. And what he sees is that he gets to the foot of a hill. When I got to the foot of the hill where the valley ended that had pierced my heart with fear, I assume, although I'm not sure, I assume that the forest, the dark wood, is in this valley, and he's come to a hill. I looked high up and saw its shoulders bathed in the rays of the planet that leads us, all of us, straight along every path. Okay, I just have to stop because it's important to see this. What planet is he talking about? He's talking about the sun. We are not in a heliocentric universe. We're certainly not in a quantum universe. We're in a geocentric universe. If you know the fancy terms, we're in a Ptolemaic universe, not a Copernican universe, but skip all that. The Earth is the center of the universe, and the sun rotates around the Earth, and the sun is another of the planets. When we get way up in the Paradiso, Dante is going to get into the sphere of the sun, which is yet another of the planets that orbit the Earth. I'm sure many flat earthers will still think this, but when he looks up on high and sees the hills, shoulders bathed in the rays of the planet that leads all of us straight along the path, he's talking about the sun. It's dawn. If you want to know, it's Good Friday. We'll know that more about that later, but for now, we don't know that from these lines. Later in the poem, we'll learn that this has to be Good Friday morning. That's one of the things about the comedy that's so wild. In order to read the comedy, you have to have already read the comedy. Or, let me put it another way, in order to interpret the comedy, you first have to know it all the way through to the end. Once you know the whole poem, you can go back and say, oh, look, it's dawn and it's Good Friday. I don't know that from these lines. I know that from the larger comedy itself. That's part of the problem of reading the Divine Comedy. It's also part of the problem with Dante. There is this notion, and I think it's probably a fairly good notion, that he's got this thing basically in his head from start to finish up front. There may be a moment, we're going to get to it, where he seems to stop and back up and start again. But by and large, there are so many similarities and repeated passages and patterns inside the comedy itself that he may well have this entire giant edifice somewhere in his head before he even starts. So the sun is coming up. It's Good Friday morning. And of course, dawn always brings hope. Then he says, the fear in the lake of my heart was calmed. Lago del Cor, lake of my heart. Now, 
there's all kinds of reasons he's saying this. There is this notion in medieval anatomy that the heart is a reservoir of blood. They don't really understand that the blood circulates through the body. Instead, they think it comes out of the heart and it goes out to the extremities and it slowly dissipates all along the vein networks. They don't really know the difference between veins and arteries. They don't understand all of what we know about the circulatory system. And so the heart is a repository of the blood that sends it out throughout the body. That said, Lago del Cor, Lake of My Heart, is so beautiful. Dante could have said it any number of ways, but this great poet put it in this gorgeous poetic speech. And who of us has not felt the trouble in the lake of your heart? Who amongst us hasn't felt disturbance on the waters of the heart, as it were? It's so gorgeous. And then the fear in the lake of my heart was calmed. And who hasn't felt that? That the heart is agitated like the surface waters on a lake and it's calm. And it's so important that it's a lake for what comes next. The fear that had lasted all the night that I had spent in distress. So all that night in that wood, scared to death, waking up all alone, I see the sun. It's coming up over this hill. And I think, oh, thank goodness things may get better. And as someone with belabored breath who has gotten out of the deep and to the shore, and this is why Lake of the Heart is so important, because here it's going to pick up the water imagery. This, in fact, is an image of maybe larger than a lake, an ocean or a beach or a large expanse of water. Someone who gets out of it with belabored breath and gets onto the shore looks back at the perilous waters. So my mind, still fleeing, look at that. The mind is in motion while the body has paused. So my mind, still fleeing, turned back to look once more at the past no one has ever left alive. I should just say that this bit, as someone with belabored breath who has gotten out of the deep into the shore, it's, a, it's kind of a bit of a shipwreck metaphor, right? Or somebody maybe crossing the Bosporus, swimming across. There's there's an image for you. Swimming across the Bosporus. It's, it's, it's all a, an elaborate simile or metaphor. And this is going to begin, in fact, this is the first of over 400 similes in the poem. Giant, expansive. They're going to get more and more elaborate as we go on. But this is the first one. And the first simile of the poem, as someone with, belated breath, with belabored breath, who has gotten out of the deep to the shore and then looks back at the perilous water, so my mind still fleeing, turned back to look once more at the past no one has ever left alive. That bit of being shipwrecked is so important. Here's why. Because there is going to be, for lack of a better word, a Jason program in the comedy. Jason, Jason and the Argonauts, the chase after the golden fleece, that whole mythological structure. That's going to occur again and again inside the comedy. And in fact, Jason is going to get renovated from a, or redeemed, from a, a ne'er-do-well who steals the golden fleece to finally, at the end of the poem, Dante is going to identify himself, the poet, as the new Jason, who has brought back the new golden fleece, that is, the comedy. The person who has brought it 
back from an arduous and bad voyage. Dante is ultimately going to become the new Jason. And so that the first metaphor of the poem is of shipwreck, is of someone having come out of the deep waters and up onto the shore and is relieved and is breathing hard, but turns and looks back, fleeing while still fleeing in the mind, and turns and looks back at the danger they've just passed. That's all crucially important to the poem. It sets up the images of shipwreck and it sets up the images of Jason and troubled waters and Argonauts and just about a dozen different ideas that will play out over the course of the comedy. Remember, and this is so crucial, the comedy is way smarter than we are way smarter than we are and that it's already setting up its thematic structures shouldn't surprise us let me say one more bit about this hill the sun is coming up over it it's the sun that leads us all on a straight path and i just want to say that this seems like a symbolic landscape right doesn't it seem dark wood hills sunrise it seems emotionally symbolic or physically symbolic and believe me there have been hundreds of years of commentators who do see it as symbolic in fact in medieval interpretive strategies there is almost always an allegorical reading of every text and that is a reading in which it indicates something beyond the literal level we'll get to this later but medieval reading is often predicated on both 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 i want to say that a million times both a literal and an allegorical reading of any poetic moment and you can imagine, many people have tried to figure out what is this? What is this hill? What is this sun? I mean, obviously it's the sun, but does it represent more? And many, many people have come to the conclusion that this hill and this sun is the best that humans can do on their own. You'll see why in the next passage. That is that this is the hill that represents, I don't know what, the best of human effort. The best that humans can do on their own. And it's got the light of the sun on it. So it's not dark. It's not dark what humans can do on their own. Instead, it's just the best that there can be. And so he's come to this place that is, as it were, as far as a person can go under their own steam. That's what most commentators see out of it. There's a little bit of trouble with this. It's going to come up several episodes in the future of the podcast in a future uh, canto of Inferno when we get to the realm of the philosophers, which seems to be a higher hill than this hill and more effort than this effort. So I'm not exactly sure that reading is right, but I can tell you he's come out of a dark wood. He's got to the end of the valley. He's come to a hill. The sun is coming up. And then, and this is what's crucial, he looks back. Why? As you'll see in the next episode, he is going to be blocked from any farther progress. Any further progress, too. Any further or farther progress. He's going to be blocked from it. And there's a way in which you could read it that Dante is blocked, and so that's why he can't go on without some kind of supernatural help. However, look at this passage. The pilgrim himself hesitates long before we learn about the blocks. The blocks are coming. They're going to be in the next episode. But the pilgrim himself hesitates. He turns back to look once more at the past. No one has ever left alive. It's important to realize that the initial hesitation lies with the pilgrim, not with external forces. 
the external forces are going to come. Stay tuned. It's in the next episode of Walking with Dante, and we'll hit what stops his progress in its tracks. But for now, we've walked this far. And I want to just start back and read you again the entire bit we've done so far, the first 27 lines of the comedy, and just let you hear how the walk is already unfolding. In the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wood, for the straightway was lost. Ah, how hard it is to say what that wood was, so savage and gnarled and hard, that such a thought brings back my fear. It is so bitter that death is hardly more so. But to discuss the good I found there, I will tell the other things I saw. I cannot rightly say how I got there. I was so full of sleep at the moment when I abandoned the true way. But when I got to the foot of a hill, where the valley ended that had pierced my heart with fear, I looked high up and saw its shoulders bathed in the rays of that planet that leads all of us straight along every path. Then the fear in the lake of my heart was calmed, the fear that had lasted all the night that I had spent in distress. And as someone with belabored breath who has gotten out of the deep into the shore then looks back at the perilous water, so my mind, still fleeing, turned back to look once more at the pass no one has ever left alive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. We're making our way through the first canto of Inferno. We're doing it at my pace, which is a little slow. Next time, we're going to hit a much longer passage, and we're going to find out what, in fact, stops Dante from this hill and almost leads to the complete failure of the journey itself before it even gets very many steps on its way. So join me next time for Walking with Dante. If you can, rate this podcast, subscribe to it. I'd be glad to have you back with me next time.